Today, we're taking a look at professional football's only undefeated team and perfect season. This is the story of the 1972 Miami Dolphins. Welcome to another exemplary episode of Stories from the Nosebleeds. I'm Chris Levy, and I'm joined today on my right by our gracious host, Taggart Jacob. Those locks are looking luscious as ever. We're also joined across the table today by uh, our resident Dr. Locks, Jesse Drebbett. Your bet's hitting this week, or...? Well, let me tell you, Levs, uh, the bets are kind of hitting, but also not kind of hitting. So oh. we're kind of up and down. Oh, we're we, always up and down. Are we going to have to worry about your doctorate in locks or what? Uh, don't worry about it. I'll let you know by the end of the week. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, saying. that's just the way of the road, bubs. So. Exactly. Uh, anyways, I got a question for you, fellas, before we get going. Yes. Since we're going to be talking perfection today, I need to know, like, what's your perfect sandwich? Let me, let me start Ooh. off. Let me start off, though. I'm going with a grilled five cheese, all right? I'm going to get some Havarti, maybe some roasted garlic Havarti, then some mozzarella, some aged cheddar, and some provolone inside, and then do like a Parmesan crust on the outside. Throw some honey ham in there. That's my perfect sandwich. I like it. We we talking like toasted, like grilled up, like kind of like a grilled cheese. Wow, or... that yeah, that would be a grilled cheese. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. like you don't you don't have to have a grill. It can be a cold sandwich. I, I'm like, sure it'd still be good. Yeah. 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 That's that's the way I'm probably gonna lean. Is probably a cold sandwich. Yeah. See, I like them hot. You know. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna go with. I am a fucking big fan of a good beef dip. Oh yeah. So I'm gonna go along yeah. that route. Yeah. I'm gonna say you, you you gotta have the Swiss cheese, and a little bit of like a horseradish mayo. Big fan of that. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> You're a monster. <laughs> Get taste buds. Yeah. Mozzarella belongs on a beef dip more than a Swiss cheese does. No, Swiss. And get them quick beef because and Swiss. that sounds pretty delicious, actually. <laughs> beef and Swiss is where it's at. Yeah, Suck yeah. my cock. No, no, it's a beef dip. <laughs> it's a beef dip. Shaved roast beef, au jus, bun. I, I'm, I'm a fan of the originals as well. I, I don't like going extreme. Yeah. Don't don't be putting a bunch of uh, you know, I mean, I know onions I know and mushrooms. And... Your, your, your wife made this for me the other day, and I know just how delicious it is. <laughs> but I'm still going to shit on it because my sandwich is better. Are you still leaning to the same, or are you going to put a little bit of your own content in? No, I'm going to go cold. Uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a sucker for a chicken salad sandwich, actually. I think that might be my favorite sandwich. Mix it up with a little mayo, and then uh, chopped uh, onions and pickles. Those are the key ingredients to making a good chicken salad sandwich, in my opinion. I, I can't believe you went with one of the like egg salad, chicken salad, like one of those sandwiches. That, yeah. th- that's your number one sandwich. That's your that's your perfect sandwich. It's just more tasty, more than anything. I go I go for taste when it comes to sandwiches. That, that, I mean, taste is kind of the whole point, is it not? No meatball subs. No hoagies. No Monte Cristos. We're going with the Monte chicken. Cristos are fucking sick. Monte Cristos are sick, but we're going with a chicken <laughs> salad sandwich. Uh, okay, how how's this sound? <laughs> We're going to spend this whole episode fucking ripping on Jesse here for his fucking decision here. Oh, like the last two episodes. Yeah, 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 a real shocker here. (laughs) 1A, chicken salad sandwich. No, no, no. No, 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 You You get one. No, just one. But you said... You've already made your decision. Yeah, yeah, no, you've already made your decision. It just stinks. But you said said (laughs) meatball sub, though. The gavel has dropped. You are done. Yeah, you got stuck with the chicken salad sandwich. You chose it, man. man. Yeah, that's how you get Marquette King in the fantasy draft. Listen, y'all need taste buds. Uh, <laughs> I think that we can all agree that I'm right, and also that the 1972 Dolphins have no equal as the only undefeated team in NFL history. When the Dolphins started out in the AFL from 1966 to 1969, they weren't very good. They only had like 15 wins under uh, then head coach George Wilson. 
The hiring of Don Shula was on February 18, 1970. Joe Robbie, the founder and owner of the Dolphins, was emphatic that Shula was his guy. Shula was the current head coach of the Baltimore Colts at the time. Robbie promised Shula full control of the team, which included roster moves and even a 10% ownership stake of the team. That's the biggest thing. 10% roster stake of arguably, well, one of the bigger franchises in NFL history. Yeah. I'm, just as a whole. Uh, absolutely. But, I mean, that's on his own back and sweat. No, he added to that. But, yeah. man, the uh, what that is worth today. Well, they were dog shit when he got there. No fans. Yeah. Ten to 15,000 a game in a stadium that sits 70. You know, like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Right? And that 10% stake now is worth hundreds of millions. Easily. It has to be. There were two writers for the Miami Herald at the time, Bill Brosher and Edwin Pope who said to Robbie to hire Shula as well after the 1969 season ended. What really excited Shula to come to Miami besides roster control were the players the Dolphins had drafted years prior, feeling he could get the most out of them when previous head coach George Wilson couldn't. At the league meetings in 1970 in Hawaii, Rosenblum complained to Commissioner Pete Rozelle that the Dolphins were tampering with Shula without talking to the Colts first. Roselle cited Rosenblum, and Miami was docked a first-round pick, which would go to the Colts in 1971. With that pick, Baltimore selected running back Don McCauley out of North Carolina. And I looked at McCauley's stats, and he wasn't really a factor for the Colts at the time. Ah, good. So they were bad at drafting back then as well. They were. Excellent. Good to know. Correct. (laughs) Well, and realistically, I mean, that, that means it was totally worth the hiring Shula. Yeah, yeah. They didn't lose shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they got Don Shula, arguably one of the best NFL coaches of all time. The winningest coach in NFL history as he's, well. He's top three, right? I mean, you got Bill Belichick, you got Don Shula, and... Um, three becomes a little hazy. Is it, is it Lombardi? Is it Landry? Uh, is it Bar- Parcells? Yeah, I mean, you've you got so many different options at three, but I mean, it's... it's part, or, Sorry, it's uh, Shula... And it's Belichick for me, one and two. Shula for the wins, like 325, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Belichick with the Super Bowls was six. Mm-hmm. And then, you, you know, that third one I think would probably be up for debate mm-hmm. at this point. So you could go with a Bill Walsh, a Chuck Knoll, a Jimmy oh, Johnson. Man, Chuck Knoll. Yeah. We'll have a whole other episode on that. Don't you worry. Oh, we yeah. will. Oh, Tune in do. for more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to hear us yell at each other about rankings, you're going to oh. want to turn in for that one. Yeah, those... those uh, Fast break episodes, yeah. yeah. Th- those are eighty uh, percent yelling, ten percent content, ten percent be beer. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah, Pabst Blue Ribbon, please give us free beer. <laughs> we would appreciate it. Second week in a row, we're promoting mm-hmm. Pabst Blue Ribbon. Well, you know, if you keep pumping their tires, maybe somebody will notice and give us free beer. That's exactly That's right. literally all I'm here for. That is the dream. Listen, I don't care about economics or <laughs> paper or anything like that. No. Just, g- just give me an aluminum can, and I'm good. As long as that can's full of crispy. Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> That's right. Refreshing. <laughs> Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pabst Blue. Get yours today. I'm white trash and I'm in trouble. <laughs> so I'll tell you a little bit of the background of Don Shula. Shula would coach two seasons. His defenses nabbed 53 interceptions, recovered 53 fumbles, and scored six touchdowns. In 1963, he would leave Detroit to become the head coach of the Baltimore Colts. From 1963 to 1969 with Baltimore, Shula would earn 71 wins, 13 of which came during the 1968 season where he would lead the Colts to become NFL champions and play in Super Bowl III against the New York Jets. Despite being 18-point favorites, however, the Colts were shocked by Joe Namath's guarantee as the Jets would win the game 16-7. 
After the loss in Super Bowl III, the relationship between Shula and team owner Carol Rosenblum was starting to fade as the team headed into the 1969 season, where the Colts finished with an 8-5-1 record and missed the playoffs entirely. So, I feel with Shula, like, you know, and he had a, uh, he had a pretty good roster back then, like he had Johnny Unitas, Lenny Moore, uh, Raymond Barry. Earl Morrill. Earl Morrill, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. A familiar name you're going to hear soon. <laughs> very true. So Shula was very established in Baltimore, spending uh, six seasons and taking the Colts to Super Bowl three. The best way to compare him to someone that uh, people would recognize today is Sean, um, Sean McDermott or Sean McVay. Young guys that are uh, way ahead of their time um, doing something different, getting a hold of a team at a young age, having success, having a little bit of failure, and then turning that around and having to go somewhere else. Sean McVay is now in L.A. doing an absolutely unbelievable job down there. Yeah, so Sean McDermott looks like a genius up in Buffalo. He had some he had some haters at the start, and thank God ownership was patient. With, Mc, with McDermott, too, he went through – a bit of growing pains, whereas McVay, he knew what he wanted, and the Rams were competitors right away. I would yeah. say it helped he had the roster to work with right off the hop, I think, in L.A., versus McDermott didn't quite have the same level of uh, yeah. talent around him to work with, but he clearly had a vision, and it's it's working. So I think Sean McVay is probably the perfect uh, comparison uh, to, to Don Shula if you're looking at something up-to-date. Obviously not the same legacy. There's a long time to go, but... Young guy takes over a roster that's ready to win now, puts it out there. They falter in the big game on the field. Don Shula is not letting these guys drink water at practice at all. Yeah. Period. End of story. Like, you're going to kill these men. I'm like, well, none of them died. <laughs> they're just fine. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they're still moving. Well, but you and know, you know that's a, if you look at the a lot of the players that were on that 72 Dolphins team, a lot of them were successful outside of football um, and not in roles of like, hey, come be a figurehead. You know, some of that, Larry Zonka. You know? <laughs> but some of them became, one of them became a senator. Uh, Nick Bonaconti has one of the most successful spinal uh, injury clinics in the world and foundations in the world. Um, you know, these are really intelligent dudes that did a lot with smarts and you don't see that with players these days, anyways. No, and you really instilled that with just. It, it seemed like he took this team that, like you said, they were quite lackadaisical in previous mm-hmm. seasons, and really uh, flipped the script and said, "No, you guys are, you're working, and yeah. you know this is my show. This is the way it's going to go." And I mean, that attention to detail, that uh, extreme focus really kind of turned them into the, the fine-tuned machine that yeah. they really were. We're going to be in better shape than everybody else. We're going to know our plays so well that we call them in. We don't have to waste time in the huddle. We run the ball. We keep slamming it down their throats. We're going to control the clock. We're not going to get in these run-and-gun scenarios. We are just going to control the game until we win. And how do you compete with the Baltimores at the time, the Oaklands of the time, the Clevelands of the time? Dallas. Yeah, Green, the Cowboys. Green Bay. Yeah, yeah. Although different conferences, obviously. Different leagues. Different leagues, yeah. yeah. Wasn't even conferences at the time. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, you gotta you gotta fight fire with fire when it comes to like, you know, Colts, Raiders, Browns, those teams back then that were actually Steelers. really, really good. Yeah. Steelers were on their way up. Yeah. But uh 
Yeah, they weren't necessarily that star-studded roster. Yeah. Not yet. Not yet. And, you know, Don Shula turned these guys into stars because of what they became as a core, like, as a unit. Yeah. It, it wasn't, generally speaking, it wasn't one individual making the difference. It was everybody doing their job as well as they possibly could. Well, he got rid of all the non-team players. Yeah. And, I mean, you just don't see it in the, the culture of sports anymore, like, regardless of the sport. Um this like whole ditch your ego at the door and be a team player, pull the team rope, do the team thing. And Don Shula rewarded the guys that did that. And that's how they got to keep their jobs. That's how they got to keep winning. And, and they saw that as they through the 1971 season, as they bought into what Shula was preaching, all of a sudden they're a powerhouse in the AFL. Speaking of which, I am going to tell you about the 1971 season. Yeah. So after making the playoffs for the first time in the three, two, one, after making the playoffs for the first time in the pre, oh, <laughs> you absolute fool, and it's have a night, Leon Dreisaitl. Give that to us. Well, why would you vibrate? Chicken sandwich guy, I'm telling you. He's on a there. fucking roll tonight. I don't know, man. What's <laughs> going on? Also, meatball marinara. But I mean, oh, nope, it's too nope. Late. It's too you're, late. You're the fucking you can't chicken it. salad guy. You're the chicken salad sandwich guy. <laughs> 19, oh. 1970. <laughs> 1970. All right, the Dolphins. They you team buys in a lot easier that way. And you yeah. get people start falling into and, line. And they rolled that for longevity too. Like when you go from worst to first, like that could, carry on for you know a few more seasons actually absolutely huh it's a little foreshadowing eh? this guy so let me tell you about 1971 <laughs> let's do it here miami was playoff run in 1971 they won the afc east with a 10-3 and one record finishing ahead of 10 and 4 baltimore they were fourth in team offense scoring 315 points behind a points and 40 seconds took place this would be the last game at Municipal Stadium before the Chiefs moved into their new digs at Arrowhead Stadium. In a back-and-forth classic, Dolphins kicker Garo Upremian kicked the 37-yard field goal to give Miami the 27-24 win in double overtime. Colts quarterback Johnny Unitas three times, one of which was a 62-yard return for an inter... Three, two... On Miami's second drive of the game and connected with Warfield again on a 50-yard gain to set up running back Larry Zonka's five-yard touchdown run. So Miami in 1971, they were basically trying to build off the momentum from 1970 and pretty much finished like right around where they finished the year prior, but obviously going a little bit deeper this time around. Power running game, Jim kick, Larry Zonka, control the ball, running the ball six out of every ten plays. That was the method to the madness. Um, yeah, I mean, that was the league back then, right? You know, you're not seeing too many throws, especially not deep ones. Um, you know, most of it is, is ball control, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust kind of stuff. And if you had big, powerful guys like Miami had with a strong line like Miami had, you could dominate <clears throat> You could dominate and continue to go uh, against just about anybody in the league. Just run it up the middle with uh, number 66, Larry Little, and all your problems will be gone. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But uh, <clears throat> heading on down to Louisiana, New Orleans was the host city for the surprise Miami, Miami Dolphins. 
They had to meet a team that just couldn't get it done several times before, however, and they had the scars to prove it. The Dallas Cowboys, a team that had lost to Green Bay two years in a row in the they were back in the big dance with renewed resolve and something to prove. Larry Zonka and Jim Kick were still the focal point of this Dolphins offense with a strong power game meant to control the clock and thus control the game. But they ran into trouble early when the incredibly reliable Zonka uncharacteristically fumbled the ball for the first time in 236 carries. The Cowboys turned that into not so much how the Cowboys beat them, but how they felt that they had lost the game. Yeah, they really f- didn't feel like they played their game. No. That was the issue they had with it. Yeah. And that really fueled the fire going forward. But yeah, realistically, they they weren't mad at who beat them, how they beat them. It was they, they felt that they beat They felt the better team had lost and that they shouldn't have lost that game. And, you know, Larry Zonka, the insane human being that he is, says tears is bullshit when you lose because you should just be mad and want to come back and do that again and beat them. Um <clears throat> So this group of 52 men decided this is not going to happen to us again next year. And uh, it, they, they, they were not to be stopped. And I think on that day, too, like you go back to Super Bowl six. I think the Dolphins learned a lot from the Cowboys that day. Three, two, one. Yep, okay. three, two, one. I think going back to that game, too, like you mentioned Super Bowl six. I think the Dolphins learned a lot. Well, yeah, Tom Landry's dazzle formation, the slot running crossing, quick hitter, uh, slants from the outside. That was what their offense was. They dominated. They showed the Dolphins the... From that point, you know, it really started the ball rolling into the 72 season. Yeah, and Don Shula, by multiple players, he was adamant that he wanted a perfect undefeated season which obviously at the time everyone nobody thought it was actually possible nobody thought they were actually going to do it but they were going in with the mindset like yeah we're going to win every game we're going to be the best we can be and everybody really bought into that mindset for the 1972 season yeah every interview that you see with with all the players even mercury morris who was mercurial at times um was absolutely we're buying in we're doing whatever shula says this year we're just doing it and if you were taking a break during a practice at any point in time shula's screaming at being 80 yards away from him while he's watching a wide receiver drill and thinking he can stand up straight with his hands on his hips and all he hears from the other side of the get your hands off your hips like oh god (laughs) yeah i wouldn't want to play for don shula this man sees everything yeah absolutely everything stand behind him he's still gonna call you out even the 80 yards down the other side of the field he he knows what's going on exactly but that really made them a a stronger team you know even even that kind of like that spite that you have in the back of your you know mind for your coach because they're treating you like this brings your your team together and i think that showed no more so well it showed a lot throughout this (laughs) team i guess i should say but the the three-headed backfield that they had uh, so after the devastating loss in Super Bowl VI to the Dallas Cowboys, Don Shula decided he needed to make a change to the way that he used his roster. Eugene Mercury Morris was speed, explosion, outside runner, east-west, looking for holes and burst. You know, for 190 rushes for exactly 1,000 yards, 12 touchdowns. He also gathered 15 catches for 168 yards and no touchdowns. Great season. Yeah, fantastic season. <laughs> I mean... 
by 1970 standards. Well, <laughs> talking about a guy that's getting used situationally still manages to get 190 touches and 1,000 yards. Like, True. That's, that's unreal. And you know the guy that was never leaving the field was Larry Zonka. He's an insane human, pe- human being. He is truly what football violence incarnate is. But he was also fast and powerful and impossible to bring down. Uh, a nasty player in nasty times. He got 213 rushes for 1,117 yards, six touchdowns, and then another five catches for 48 yards and no touchdowns. Although truly a team player, he did not care for personal accolades as long as the team was winning. <laughs> He's the, one of the only fullbacks in league history to get an unnecessarily unnecessary roughness foul uh, well on offense. To say while carrying the ball. Yeah, he got he stiff-armed a guy, broke his jaw, and knocked him out. But yeah, I remember when they uh, threw the flag or whatever, and uh, Shula was just like, oh, I'm assuming it's always on the defense, right? Like In that situation, In that sure. situation, but then the ref says uh, personal foul on the offense, and Shula's just like, uh, no, I think that's a mistake. I think you're going the wrong way. And the ref's just like, nope, broke his jaw and knocked him out. And the third head to that monster in the backfield was Jim Kick, uh, a pal clutch gene guy. Um, he was in the waiting area of his career. And, and was transitioned to the more of the bench role in the 1972 season. He still ended up with uh, 500 all-purpose yards and another nine touchdowns, uh, both through the air and on the ground, for a nine. Sorry, that was confusing. Holy shit. Um, but somehow I understood what you were talking about. <laughs> never going to turn over the ball, but he also wasn't explosive. He wasn't going to pick you up 30, 40-yard ch- chunk plays. Bodies and somehow fall into the end zone yeah but jim kick had been the starter for the last five seasons and this is my teammate and we're winning games so this is what we're gonna do and yeah. i'm not gonna who am i to question it we're winning games yeah. and that and at the end of the day that should be the goal for everyone on that team yeah well, and shula really instilled that mindset in general right like we, we talked about it just that uh he didn't care about the personal accolades yeah as long as the team won who gives a shit park the ego you know we're here to win. If you're not doing your job, the next guy's going in. Somebody's going to be doing their job right. And when that person does it, they're going to stay in the game. That's the only thing that mattered to Don Shula. So I, I think what could have been, in today's day and age, would have been a huge controversy and would have had so much media coverage. Uh, these guys handled it with class and absolute courtesy of, of one another. And... It, that, you know, to your point, was just the rest of the team, including the expendables offensive line. You know, the the long forgotten about. We got. I love celebrating the O-line because nobody talks about them. Literally I mean, nobody. I mean, you know, being a former quarterback, those are the guys that you appreciate the most. So, I mean, you know, they're protecting your blind side, protecting your rear end, you know. I mean, you have relationships with receivers and running backs and all that kind of stuff, but it's the offensive line that, you know, keeps you upright. Yeah. So they, they were the underrated starters of this team. Even the no-name defense got more clout than these guys did. Um, the, but the starters were made up almost entirely of players that were not drafted by the Miami Dolphins. They picked them up either through trade or as free agents, you know, pulling guys off the scrap heap, as it were. And they turned it into arguably one of the top 10 O-lines in, in league history with uh, a couple of players that ended up in the Hall of Fame. So we'll start with Doug Crusan, who was actually the only player drafted by Miami. By Miami. He was a first-round pick, uh, 27th overall in the 1968 draft. 
He's also the only starter to never get an All-Pro honor. So, oh, man. <laughs> but he was still so trusted by the team that he anchored the left tackle position for all three of the Super Bowls the Dolphins participated in in the early 70s. Next to him in the left guard position was Bob Kuchenberg. He was drafted by Philadelphia in the fourth round, 80th overall in the 1969 draft, but uh, ended up quitting the Eagles shortly after training back <laughs> training camp uh, started. He uh, called his family to tell his mother that he had quit and that he was coming home, and his brother, who was also an NFL player, just happened to be there, gets on the phone. <laughs> you did what? <laughs> you quit the NFL? Get back to Chicago. I got a place for you. So he ends up playing a, a year with the uh, Chicago Owls of the Continental Football League before signing with the Miami Dolphins, where he would go on to get six All-Pro honors over the years. The Continental Football League, so not... I mean, CFL abbreviated, right? Yeah, how would they I do guess that, technically. Because right? the CFL would have already had that trademarked. They would have, yeah. I yeah. wonder. They had to go by full name. Oh, Couldn't God. run an abbreviation. <laughs> yeah. Like when you say the C- Con FL. When you think CFL. Con you think- oh, that sounds worse. <laughs> Might as well take the. F- that. I would watch the. <laughs> Prison rules, baby. Is this the Ivy League? Uh- <laughs> so what you're saying is we're basically watching the longest yard. Yes. Okay, I'm in. Yeah. You've yeah. convinced me. Yeah. All right, anyways. Which team does Paul Crew play for? <laughs> <laughs> Moving down the line, you get to center, and you get to one of the two Hall of Famers, Jim Langer, who was a standout athlete at South Dakota State, playing both middle linebacker and offensive line, going back and forth between guard and tackle. But it didn't stop there, though, as he was also a two-sport athlete playing uh, baseball as an outfielder, where in his junior year he led the team in hits. It's wild to think an O-lineman playing outfield in baseball. Or middle like, linebacker. Those are like vastly different <laughs> body types requirements. Also, you know that dude is batting fourth in the lineup. He oh, for to. sure. Yeah, he that guy. Has to. That guy fucking slugs. Oh, yeah, for sure. He had to. But he's power. playing outfield. He's playing outfield. That guy's got wheels. Oh yeah. Big boy's got to run. Uh, uh, the offensive line is full of athletes. People just don't realize it, right? Absolutely. You know, especially the centers. They're generally a little bit smaller guys. Not quite the tackles. The six foot seven, six foot nine guys on the tackle lines, but. Jim Langer's even above that. I can't believe what I can't believe the Cleveland Browns had him. Took a look at him, went, "Yeah, get out of here, buddy." I'm also not surprised because it's also the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, but back then they were pretty good. They were very good. Yes. That's yeah. But the Dolphins snapped him up like right quick. He was on the wire for three days. He ends up being a first ballot Hall of Famer. Right, <laughs> that's a good. That's a good pickup. Yeah, the one that got away from Cleveland. How many? Oh my goodness, <laughs> plenty. One of on many. That. Oh my goodness, <laughs> shit that Cleveland's missed. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. But anyways, the interior of the line gets even more solid when you look at Larry Little, an absolute road grader of a human being, playing at the right guard position. He played his college football at Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach, Florida, before signing with the San Diego Chargers as an undrafted free agent in 1967. Two years in San Diego was all the Chargers wanted to see of him, and they traded him to the Miami Dolphins, where he played the rest of his career, establishing himself as one of the best offensive guards to ever play in the NFL. 100%. Oh, that was your phone this time. No, it was my computer, actually. Oh, was it? It was an email. I'm sure. It was. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) All of a a sudden, chicken salad doesn't sound so bad, does it? It still sounds horrible. Oh, how the (laughs) turntables. Oh, dang it. <laughs> well, who was drafted in the 14th round of the 1965 AFL draft by the Houston Oilers. 
Evans is one of only three players to get taken twice in expansion drafts, originally by the Miami Dolphins in the 1966 expansion draft, before 10 years later being taken in yet another expansion draft by the Seattle Seahawks, finishing his career with three seasons there. He did end up getting a couple all-pro nods later in the 70s while he was playing for the Dolphins. Um, just a rock on the tackle. Like the, This line is so strong. Like it's unbelievable that that's why, in my opinion, anyways, this line is the reason they had the top offense for three years running in the seventies. And you needed a solid offensive line to give you, you know, thousand yard rushers every year. Multiple. Two, two one thousand yard rushers. In the, in First time case, ever. In this case, you yeah, you have two thousand yard rushers. Also, for you kids out there who don't know who the Houston Oilers are, they were currently the Tennessee Titans as of twenty twenty one. Much better team. I much well. I miss Earl Campbell. I miss Earl Campbell. I miss Warren Moon. I miss Eddie George. I, I miss, miss Steve those, McNair. I, I miss those uniforms. The baby blues, yeah. <sighs> those powder blues. Yeah. Was, the Oilers had better uniforms. Yeah, yeah. Those, than the Titans have now, for sure. I would agree. Yeah, for sure. With that little tint of red. The, the hints of red really, hint, uh, it really br- set it off. Brings them out. Yeah. Really brings the room together. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, I did mention earlier the, the no-name defense is getting more clout than the expendables. That clout was well-deserved, though, especially after getting a ridiculous nickname like the no-name defense. Yeah, certainly. So I'll tell you a little bit about the no-name defense. I'll try and prop them up as much as I can. So although they didn't have the name recognition of Hall of Fame players such as quarterback Rob Greasy, running back Larry Zonka, and wide receiver Paul Warfield, the no-name defense was a group of players that almost always rose to the occasion. On the defensive line, you had defensive tackle Manny Fernandez. Going undrafted out of the University of Utah in 1968, Fernandez would join Miami and be placed as a defensive tackle, where at 6'2", 250 pounds, could plug up the middle and get enough pressure on the quarterback to make him throw the ball quicker than anticipated. He was actually brought in as a PR stunt. Yeah, that's right. They brought him in because Hispanic name, Hispanic community in Miami, they thought that he would put bums in seats when they were struggling to get people to come to the games. He is Spaniard as like an ethnic background. But he doesn't speak any Spanish. Not a lick. Not a lick. <laughs> Which is awesome. Hilarious. And the guy turns out to be a great fucking football a player. A fantastic football player. Like a, a, a force in the middle of the field. Well, Fernandez was named to the second team, all AFC team. A real problem for centers and guards. And uh, on a spare time, this dude would uh, drive out to the Everglades and wrestle alligators as yes. a hobby. Love it. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any crazier or wilder than that. Could you imagine today's teams finding out that one of their players was just doing that? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Could, they, they, the teams themselves would the have contract. a stroke. Yeah, they'd void the contract. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're like, hey, dumbass, fucking quit fucking around with wildlife. Jason Pierre Paul blew off his fingers doing fireworks, man. You can't be doing this shit. That's about the extreme as you get nowadays. No, that's what I mean, right? So you're saying playing with alligators might be safer than playing with fireworks. I'm no, saying no. that they're both horrible ideas. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a professional athlete. But uh, playing uh, beside Fernandez was uh, defensive end Bill Stanfill, selected 11th overall out of the University of Georgia in 1969. Nice. 
Coming off the edge, Stanfield had a lot of success in 1972 as he tallied, unofficially, because sacks weren't a stat until 1982, 10 sacks. Good enough to rank second on the team opposite Vern Dan Herder. Did you get that? That's a mouthful. Vern Dan Herder. Yes. Like, like a hyphenated Vern Dan? Uh, yeah. Or is it Vern middle name Dan, Dan Herder? It's Vern Dan Herder. It's not hyphenated. It's just Vern Dan Herder. Wait, where's like his, his last first name is Dan Herder. Or his first name is Verdan. No, no, no. His first name is Vern. Oh, okay. Then Den, D-E-N, Herder. Den Herder. Oh, okay, okay. So his last name is Den Herder. I, basically, I think so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's gotta, gotta be Dutch. Ah, <laughs> oh, fucking Dutch. <laughs> there's only two things in this world I hate. <laughs> if there's one thing I can't stand. <laughs> people who are intolerant to other people's races, religions, and cultures. And the Dutch. <laughs> really hurts because i got dutch <laughs> i am part dutch <laughs> damn it oh gold member well yeah we just hate things nice the heart and soul of the no-name defense was linebacker nick bonick spearhead the dolphin defense as much as he was known for his physicality bonaconti's instincts and a nose for the ball were what really separated him from other linebackers in fact bonaconti is tied for third in interceptions by a linebacker with 32 all time he is the only member from the no-name defense to be enshrined into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He would receive that honor in 2001. I loved his speech. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it's so passionate, too. Yeah. You know, when you're looking at my bust, you're looking at the bust of the 72 no-name defense. Like, and he felt it, you know? like uh, It felt like a team enshrinement more than a uh, say all those years individual later, enshrinement. All those years later, you could tell he still just loved that group of guys mm-hmm. on that team. Yeah. Absolutely. It's clearly just a powerful uh, season they, and time they had together. I, I got to imagine nothing bonds you more than having a perfect season. Yeah, fair. As a football player, right? You know, they, they you know, there's Hey, what'd that. you do? Uh, I don't know. We just fucking did the only, th- you know, did something that nobody else has ever done and may never do again. I, I don't think they will. The parody in the league has gotten so much better. Like, even how dominant that Patriots dynasty was and they still weren't able to do it. It's it, it. I don't think it's happening again. But I mean, well, technically, it's possible. Yeah, it's it's absolutely possible. But like, you've seen a lot of fifteen and one teams over the years, like uh, two thousand four Steelers, two thousand eleven Packers. But even they, you know, were like one and done, or got to the championship game and lost. Nineteen ninety eight Minnesota Vikings. There, there's another great example. Heck, I'll oh. shit on myself. Twenty fifteen Panthers. There you go. Yeah, fifteen and one. Go all the way to the Super Bowl. Eighty five Bears. Shit their pants. Eighty five Bears, but they ended up winning the Super Bowl. But they lost to the Miami Dolphins. That's right. Uh, I'm going to tell you about the secondary now. Uh, safe. Safety Dick Anderson was selected in the third round of the 1968 draft out of Colorado. Like Bonaconti, Anderson's specialty was picking off quarterbacks and recovering fumbles. U.S. Senator Dick Anderson. U.S. Senator Dick Anderson. He would be named an All-Pro in 1972. Anderson is one of seven players to record four interceptions in a game. Now, when you talk about uh, Pro Bowl versus All-Pro, I think it's a higher honor to be named an all-pro rather than than it is to be named at the Pro Bowl. Absolutely. That, yeah. that, that means you're the starter, you know, that you're the best of both leagues slash divisions, depending on what time frame you're talking about. I believe about. it's the leagues. 
Yeah, it is the league. Leagues so, at the time, right? At the time, yeah. So there was a NFL, AFL. Yeah. Both got all pro honors. Yeah, so I mean, if you're all pro honor, you are the best safety. You're the best at your position of both, whereas yeah. Pro Bowl, you'd be the best in your league. So basically, One of the top six in your league. More or less, yeah. Basically, they're like an all-pro team is offense-defense is made of 22 players. To be considered one of the 22 best players in the league, that's as high as an honor as you can get. That means you're to... the best at your position, period. Absolutely. His counterpart, playing beside him, Jake Scott, was also a ball hawk himself. Drafted out of Georgia in 1970, Scott would join Anderson as they became a dynamic duo at the safety position. He would be named to the Pro Bowl and receive second-team All-Pro honors in 1972. In his nine seasons as a pro, Scott would collect 49 and started. Before Dan Marino arrived in town in 1983, Scott donned the famous number 13 for the teal and orange. I love, I'm loving this defense because a lot of these guys are coming out of the University of Georgia, who is my college team. So I'm actually really digging this no name defense right now. I don't mind the Bulldogs. I'm more, in, I'm more intrigued by the usage of uh, the numbers. It, seeing the number 13 on defense. The number 42 on offense. Yeah, like, shit's wild. You yeah. just don't see that nowadays because obviously there's restrictions on such and, you know, numbers are restricted based on position. But it's just, it's fun to rewatch some of those games and you're like, who's this, who's this fucking safety tracking around number 13? Yeah. That's, a, that's fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, 49 interceptions by Scott is actually truly amazing because I think a guy like you know, kind of like in that high 50s, low 60s kind of number. In a passing league. In a was, passing league. I was going to say, in a time where most teams are running the ball six out of ten times. No, three out of five, if you will. Three out of five. <laughs> Goddamn Mercury Moore. Something I forgot to mention when we were talking about the three-headed monster in the backfield. So, <laughs> the Miami Dolphins ran the ball seven out of ten times in the 72 season. Like, every ten plays, they'd run seven running plays. Mercury Morris points this out in an interview that he does, and he points it out by saying the rest of the league was going three for five, which is ridiculous because that just means they're going six and ten. It's not like the Dolphins were doing that. It's just absolutely ridiculous stat to throw out there. Yeah, they were doing every three and five, and we were doing them every seven and ten. What? Like... Okay, anyways, Mercury Morris is a ridiculous human being that's done a lot of cocaine. But yeah, all, all the power to him. Yeah, but I mean, the, there's a lot of interesting storylines in this Miami Dolphins team, like the one we were just talking about. But none are more interesting to me, anyways, than Earl Morrill. Earl Morrill, man, what a story! You want to hear Giants and Baltimore? Earl Morrill was brought in to be the Dolphins' backup quarterback to Bob Greasy in 1972 for the steep price of one hundred dollars. Oh man. The 38-year-old was very familiar with Don Shula, who he played for in Baltimore. Just before the 1968 season, Colts quarterback Johnny Unitas was injured in the final preseason game against the Dallas Cowboys. With Unitas spending most of the season on the bench, in came Morrill to be the starter. Morrill would end up having a career year in 1968, where he would throw for 26 touchdowns, 2,909 yards, and a 57.4 completion percentage, while going 13-1 on the year and claiming the NFL MVP award. Other than Unitas and Greasy, Morrow would go on to back up some Hall of Fame talent in his 20 seasons as a passer, such as Y.A. Tittle in San Francisco and Fran Tarkenton with the Giants. 
While Greasy was a balanced quarterback who could push the ball down the field and scramble to get out of trouble, Morrow would rely mostly on his arm and pick defenses apart in the pocket, but could also make a play with his legs when needed to. Oh, he looks hilarious. Just like Randy Johnson. Man, he looks... <laughs> I was, like, watching highlights of Earl Morrow, I was terrified for him. I did Every like, time he left the pocket, he, I thought he was going to die. He, he, looked, he looked so frail and so, yeah, fragile. Like, any time he got hit, I thought he was going to just blow up. In, in America's game on the 72 Dolphins... Uh, on, by the way, watch that. America's game. It's great. Every America's game. Watch them all. Yes. They're fantastic. But anyways... For the 72 Dolphins, they talk about how Earl Merle looked just horrible through training camp. He was, like, just out there running lines in, like, this South Florida humid heat. And he's, like, he's nearing the end of his career. What the hell am I doing out here? <laughs> Should have never come to Miami. <laughs> the equipment manager put a rocking chair in his, like, uh, stall and put arthritis clinic underneath his main bar. Like, they... <laughs> These guys just saw this dude come in like, oh yeah, hey, Grandpa's here. He was older than some of the coaches, right? Like that's only five years younger than Don Shula himself. Yeah, at the hey, time too. If you're 38, you're pretty much retiring. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he probably oh, yeah. should be retired. Yeah, he signed for a hundred bucks to go and play in Miami. Man, this guy went to go and be a backup to Bob Greasy and just like ride the coattails, and ends up playing a far larger role than you'd expect. And it's kind of a it was kind of a gamble at the time too because you didn't know if you were going to get the nineteen sixty eight NFL. Well, you, you weren't getting that. That's what the thing like that's the thought process. You're only you're not getting that. That's why you're giving him a hundred dollars to come and be your backup. Like nobody else wants you. I like you. I'm going to do you a favor. Come play for me for a hundred bucks plus bonus. You know, play play incentives. But he signed for a hundred dollar contract. Yeah. Um, and. Hope that you don't have to play. Enjoy holding a clipboard in the Miami Sun. You know that that was the hope, and that's the dream job for me, man. Yeah. If I could be a backup quarterback, earning three points. Third third string quarterback is the answer. No, I, I was gonna say backup kicker. Well, but then you're on the practice squad and you're limited to a I think that's true a fifty thousand dollar a year contract or something like that. You but, can pay me fifty grand to do nothing. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you want to make it to Sunday though. You want to be in the building. I'd yeah. I'd, I'd want to be a starting kicker. I'm sick though. I like those pressure situations. <laughs> but, I do not. I'll be a punter. Oh yeah, there that's you a go. pretty good one. Yeah, yeah, but you can really wear the goat horns if you fuck it up. You can if you're kicker too. Yeah, yeah, but people almost expect it of the kicker. When you do it as the punter, they really shit on you. We are going to be talking about a punter. Oh, Siple, Siple's got a little bit. Uh, But before we get there, we got to start at week one. Week one, where we at, my big boy? So uh, the Dolphins ended up uh, starting the season in Kansas City. This would actually be the first game ever played at Arrowhead Stadium. Yeah, they closed Municipal and they opened Arrowhead, and I I just think that's a cool storyline. That is. When I was playing junior, we got to open up the Brooks new arena. Uh, We were the first game there against the Bandits, and I gotta tell you, like, it's, it's a really cool, interesting feeling. Like, it was different from every game that I've ever played in, right? It just had a different atmosphere to it. It's, it's cool. It's interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in Kansas City, uh, the Dolphins and Chiefs would meet in a playoff rematch from the year before, the 82-minute, 40-second thriller. Just like the year before, the Dolphins came away with a 20-10 victory. This one did not need 82 minutes and 40 seconds this time around, though. <laughs> uh, basically, 
the thing I could tell you about this game was uh, Miami's defense uh, forcing Kansas City uh, turnovers four times and turning, not turning everyone into points, but you know some of the points yeah. in the game. And for those of you worried that we're about to talk about every single game in the the perfect season, we're not. We're not, and we're about to crush Don't the worry whole about that. bunch in our own. You're gonna you're gonna like it. You're gonna enjoy every bit of it. Jesse's rubbing his nipples. We're ready to go. I love it. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I'm doing things. He's not joking. He's doing it. <laughs> oh my God, no! <laughs> Think of the children. There's children here. I sure hope not. Oh God, please no. <laughs> So the Dolphins get off to a great uh, start to the season. Two weeks later, they uh, head to Minnesota for a clash with the Vikings. The highlight here in this game is Vikings linebacker Roy Winston absolutely a swing pass out to Zonka. Uh, the ball did get there, but uh, Larry mean, did not catch the ball. Technically a clean hit. I in, mean, he in basically that, in that era of in football. that era of football, clean yeah. hit. Yeah. He 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 made contact basically as the ball hit. It. Like it was a well timed hit. Yeah, very well timed. It was like bang bang almost. But man, we can make all sorts of synonyms. Synonyms. Is that the right word? Nope. Synonyms. No. No, it is not. What's the synonyms would be like yeah. No, I know what it is. Accordion. Yeah. Synonyms. <laughs> I think that's the. I think that's the word you're looking. Antonyms no. would be no. the opposite. No, no. What's the uh... metaphor? Well, metaphors like saying it, saying it without saying like. I don't know what you're looking for. All right, there's a word for it. You guys are idiots. Um, <laughs> I'll have to look it up. I, I don't I'm even know what we're trying to figure you're, out. You're doing great with the literature lesson. Yeah. Another word for accordion? No. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, hold on. I, I got I got. Yeah, yeah, my yeah. favorite quote from the America's Game was yes. Larry Zonka talking about. You know, I I wake up some mornings in Alaska and I remember Roy Winston and I just hope that he wakes up sometime. And laughed after saying that too. I have this crazy dark smile on at the same time. You're sick. Yeah. You're, you're truly sick. <laughs> I think he actually liked getting hit that he time. He did. I, yeah. I think he likes getting hit and giving hits and like he just likes the violence. He loves the contact. Yeah. I mean, he made it pretty clear if you watch that documentary that he had no problem running through people. No. He, his theory was if two bodies were going to hit, if he had the momentum and he was a, possibly a little bigger, you were going to go down and I, he I, was going to keep running. I did love him arguing physics. You know, two things can take up the same space, just the bigger one wins. Like, wow, okay. <laughs> two things can't take the same space. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you're, uh, you're really showing your lack of education here, Larry, but... <laughs> But yeah, uh, anyways, uh, trailing 14-9 to with under two minutes remaining. Bob Greasy would throw the game-winning touchdown to tight end Jim Mandich. Dolphins would go on to win 16-14. to And for Miami, for this season, this would probably be the closest that they were to de- being defeated this year. Yeah, it was the only time they were really sweating it in the fourth quarter. There's a couple times where they're tied late in the game or, or something along those lines, but this is the only time they're down. And you get and you see a game like this, and you're thinking, oh, maybe this could be maybe a Super Bowl preview, maybe later down the line, because Minnesota had been there before in the '60s with uh, Tarkenton and Alan Page and all those guys. So, you know, maybe this would be a uh, good Super Bowl match in the future. Maybe who maybe, knows? Maybe. Uh, but we'll move on two weeks later in Week Five. the The Dolphins are playing home against San Diego Chargers. 
Quarterback Bob Greasy would suffer an ankle injury at the hands of Ron East and Deacon Jones in the first quarter. That would not deter Miami, however, as they would call upon backup Earl Morrill to lead the Dolphins to a convincing 24-10 win. And so begins the summer of Morrill. Begins the summer of Morrill. Yeah, and, and also uh, the summer of Mercury Morris. Yeah, that was really the game he kind of took over that lead role. They were kind of doing a you know full rotation for the first few games, and that was the, t- the game where he really uh, stood out from the crowd, and uh, Don Shula really... Notice that he knew that he had something. He started to trust him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Earl Morrill's into play, and, and we got to move ahead into Week Nine. So we'll fast forward a month later. Uh, this will probably be, I would say, probably our favorite game of the regular season for the Dolphins. It's got some really good quotes. <laughs> it, it definitely does. So Week Nine against uh, the New England Patriots at home in an absolute thrashing at the Orange Bowl, and I mean thrashing. Miami dominated the Patriots 52 to nothing in what would be Don Shula's 100th win as head coach, making him the fastest to reach that mark in league history. The Dolphins outgained New England in yards. Are you ready for this? 482 to 169. <laughs> I mean, Tom Brady's not fucking on the other sideline there. I hate Boston so much that that just made me feel so good. It could My, be fucking 40 years ago, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> Oh, fuck, <laughs> 50, 50, oh, shit. I you guys. No, not the city of Boston, just Boston teams. But one of my favorite things that happened in this game um, is the backup, the third-string quarterback, ended up going in for the Dolphins. And uh, Mercury Morris tells the story about how he was supposed to go in and just hand the ball off. No matter what happens, just hand the ball off. And he gets himself in a third-and-long situation, and he uh, calls a play action and throws a quick hitter to Paul Warfield, who makes a quick move, burns up the field, 44-yard touchdown. The guy comes back to the bench expecting to get accolades, and Don Chula's just screaming in his You dumb son of a bitch, I told you to hand the ball off. You're supposed to hand the ball off. What are you doing? And so you know, time passes, ball turns back over, Miami goes back out, he sends the kid back out there again, he grabs him on the way and goes, Hand the ball off! And sends him out. He goes out. Hands the ball off. They're picking up first downs. Hands the ball off. Ends up in another third and long. Does the same thing. Pulls a play action. Throws a quick hitter. Just supposed to be a quick three-yard, you know, dump-off pass. And beats the defender. Gone. 56-yard touchdown. Comes back to the bench. You're on the bench, Moral. You're back in there. Get in there and hand the damn ball off. Like, they weren't meaning to run up the score on, on Boston that day. It just... It just happened. <laughs> they slipped. Yeah. <laughs> it's also a division rival, so when you're playing a team that you have to play twice a year, you kind of want to run up the score maybe a little bit. I don't think this team was like that. When you see some of the interviews and you, you see some of the scores that they put up, they, they weren't blowing teams out. They were putting up a respectable number, but then you know they continued to pound the rock on the ground. It was about burning the clock. It was... You play our game plan, we do it the whole way. We're not trying to run the score up on these guys. So I, I don't think even divisional rivals or, or you know conference rivals for them mattered that much. It was about winning football games and not embarrassing the other team. Well, they won that day. They sure did. <laughs> uh, and to cap things off, uh, the last uh, game of the regular season, they uh, host the Baltimore Colts and uh, shut out Baltimore. Destiny. For, what, the third straight time, I believe? And yeah, Shula loved shutting out the Colts. Yeah. He loved stomping on them. 
Yeah. So like, like twenty-one to nothing, sixteen to nothing. You know. Yeah, you gotta st- gotta stick it to your former team, right? Yeah. So I mean, they they cap off that game, and you know, despite losing their starting quarterback back in week five, they they managed to finish with both the league's number one offense. And defense. Yeah, so they had the most yards accrued and the most points on offense. On defense, they had the fewest yards allowed, the fewest points allowed, and the most takeaways. Um, they had the highest yards per carry. They had the most running yards per game. They had the third highest, most uh, third highest passing yards per game, which is again kind of strange considering how often they ran the ball. But that was just how good they were at running their plays. Well, and to cap cap off that that whole running thing, they were the first ever team to have two thousand yard rushers in the same same season there with Mercury Morris and uh, Larry Zonka. Larry Zonka, right? Fullback, rushing you, for a thousand. How do you stop that? You don't. <laughs> nobody, nobody figured it out until they, you know, Mercury Morris had some injuries that let him down. Larry Zonka, uh, you know, moved on to a different league, um, went and chased some cash, which hard to fault a guy for doing that. Once those two guys kind of left and the pieces weren't there, that's the only reason this broke down. What they were doing in, in Miami is players moved on, they got old, they declined. But for this season and the period around it, it worked, period. If right? it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Yeah. So, moving on into the playoffs, the AFC Divisional Round, they were playing against Cleveland. They were at home, and uh, Shula had a bit of a rough history versus the Browns, including a 28 to nothing loss to them in his only game against them to that point while he was coaching the Dolphins. But that was back in his first year in 1970. The first score of the game was a blocked field goal returned for a touchdown by Miami. And the, the Browns' defense, honestly, they were giving them fits. They, they were really up to the task to an extent. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, as far as they could, they, they gave them The best battle. they could. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the Browns themselves actually had some massive missed plays, including a drop touchdown pass, and on the very next play, quarterback Mike Phipps threw an interception, ending what looked to be a pretty good drive going on. The Browns' defense kept them massively in it, and at the end of the first half, the Dolphins only had 12 passing yards. Wow. So, I mean, they were doing their job. Yeah, the defense was holding them in there, and they held as long as they could. Yeah. So, I mean, it was 13-7 to for Miami heading into the fourth quarter. So, pretty close game. But Phipps tosses another interception. But lucky for him, on the return by Dick Anderson, the ball was actually punched loose and recovered back to the Browns, still within Miami territory, I think somewhere around their, about their 35-yard line. The Browns on the very next play would score a touchdown, giving them their, their first lead of the game, 14-3. to The very next drive, ex-Cleveland Brown, now Miami Dolphin, Paul Warfield, would be pivotal in making some big catches and moving the team down the field to within scoring range where Jim Kick would run in the touchdown, putting Miami ahead for good. Warfield accounted for 60 of the 80 yards on that drive. You want to talk about your clutch players? Paul Paul Warfield was super clutch. Well, and, and Jim Kick, of course. I would say both of them. Yeah, Jim Kick getting the game-winning touchdown. Mercury Morris, the main man in the backfield, was actually the first one seen on the sideline. That was that kind of famous scene of you see Mercury Morris on the sideline just just jumping up and down. He's the first one there to greet John Kick as he's coming off the field, or Jim Kick, sorry. Uh, and I mean, really goes to show the uh, the teammates they had become. The uh, the enthusiasm, the unselfishness, like he didn't care, he didn't score the touchdown. 
it was that they scored a touchdown. It, this Dolphins team was about winning football games. Nothing else mattered. Yeah. So and Miami sealed the win with under a minute to go with their fifth interception of the game. That defense was something else, man. Oh. I'm I'm actually like you hear Steel Curtain, you hear uh, Legion of Boom, the you Purple hear People Eaters, people, Purple People Eaters, Orange Fier- Crush, Orange Crush, Fearsome Fort. We we could go on. No name defense should really be in the conversation for one of the greatest defenses of all time. Yeah, it's got to be in the top five or the top ten. As yeah, a unit, no, for sure. But nobody talks about them. That's because they didn't have the star power. I yeah. They didn't have the star power, but man, as a as a unit, as a, a if, cohesive piece, they if were. You could put teams in the the, the Hall of Fame. They that defensive unit would be in there. The seventy two Dolphins would be in there, but you can't. And individually, none of them had. Well, I mean, Nick Bonaconti, but outside of that, none of them had careers that stood out amongst their peers. Nick Bonaconti is not a sexy name like a Jack Lambert or a uh, like a Dick Buckus or you know any of those guys. <laughs> like, in... <laughs> yeah. There you go. Sorry, I'm twelve. <laughs> but yeah, like. <clears throat> Like, you hear those names, but you don't hear, like, the Bonacanis, the Andersons, the Scots, the Fernandez, those, those kind of... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of, of that steel curtain defense, we can move along to the 1972 AFC Championship game. A week after the Steelers had beaten the Raiders on what is known as the Immaculate Reception, they were faced with a far greater task of defeating our undefeated Dolphins. It seemed that the Steelers were a team of destiny facing off a team that was too well prepared to lose. Home field advantage rotated by division at the time, so the league-leading Dolphins had to travel to the unpredictable weather of Pittsburgh at Three Rivers Stadium. The Dolphins had started the game on offense, absolutely hammering the ground, but the Steelers bottled up Mercury Morris and Earl Moron would go Earl Morrill would go on to overthrow the Miami receiver, leading to the first turnover of the game. On a seven-minute drive that followed the Steelers pounded the rock on the ground uh, and would eventually score on what was a Terry Bradshaw fumble just before the end zone, recovered by the Steeler tackle in the end zone. But Bradshaw did end up having to leave the game for the entire second quarter. And honestly, he looked pretty concussed. Yeah, that, that's 1972 for you. Yeah. Their understanding of concussions was zero. Oh, God. And, like, <laughs> they keep trotting this guy out to, like, warm up on the sideline. They're to fucking giver. He's fucking cross-eyed. Oh, he looks groggy. Like, <laughs> Terry Bradshaw isn't a smart man to start with, but, like, <laughs> you, you give him a concussion and he looks like he's thrown to it like a ghost out there. Like, oh. like you, could, you, could, you could see, like, the trainers being like, uh, how many, Terry, how many fingers am I holding up? Thursday. Okay, yeah, you're good. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Enough. This guy's fine. He knows what day it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but late in the first quarter, the Dolphins began giving the ball to their powerful fullback, Larry Zonka, and he moved the field. He started dragging the chains, man. There were huge plays throughout this game, but honestly none bigger than Larry Seiple's fake punt that gained over 30 yards to give the Dolphins offense on the field. What a fantastic sight. I know you hate it because it's against your team. But it's beautiful. But, man, (laughs) you you could literally see him looking down the field, and you watch all the Pittsburgh backs turn to him, and he's like, well, fuck, all right, if that's what you're going to do. So apparently Larry Seipel always had a green light. Just whenever he felt like he could pull it down and get the first down, he always had a green light. But if if he messed it up, 
Shula was going to make it's him. It's his ass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. There was going to be a fine. There was going to be something involved. But they had been watching film. And on every single punt that the Steelers had covered the week before, the backs turned to the outside and started running upfield to cover their blockers to keep the, you know, the players to the outside. So Seiple's like, I'm just going to pull it down. They don't even get to see me coming. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. And he picks up 30 yards. Uh, it's over 30 yards. I, they're at the 40, their own 49, and he gets tackled at the 9. So he, he gets moving. That's well over 30. Yeah. I will say about this punt, though, like, for those of you that don't think that special teams is, you know, flashy, which, you know, it can't not be, watch this fake punt. It's like dance choreography, right? So when he gets the punt, like he's just like it looks like he's going to like he's going like fifty percent, and then he's kind of reading it while he has the ball in his hands, and then he just takes off. I don't know that I would call it choreography. I would call it a scared man. <laughs> he didn't look. He didn't look scared on that run. Well, he looked frightened at first, but he's kind of like timidly holding the ball, like, "Oh, am I gonna punt it? Oh, let her go!" Like, <laughs> but then when he saw everyone go back, it was just like, uh, "Yeah." Then he then he pulled like, it down and went. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the Steelers' ground game in the first quarter had dominated. It was not so much the same in the second quarter. They got absolutely swallowed up by the strong front seven of the Dolphins, and momentum began to swing back towards Miami. At halftime, the score was tied at 7, and the Dolphins were seemingly struggling to find any sort of traction on offense. Don Shula made the only decision that he really could, and he benched Earl Morrill with incumbent starter Bob Greasy, who at this point... He's back. He'd been back for three weeks. So he was fully healed at this time. And they were just sitting him on the bench because Earl had earned the opportunity to start. But smart, though, by Shula. Uh, you have to, right? You, you absolutely have to at this point in the game. You're tied at seven. It's the AFC Championship game. you got to get the thing done. You're on the road, too. You're on the road. So in comes Bob Greasy. But first, the Steelers have the ball. They come out passing in the second half. Uh, however, they do have backup quarterback Hangretti in, and he is bad. <laughs> well, he's not named Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not, but he's also just very bad. He, yeah. he did not play well, uh, save for a couple of series in this game. This was like your Neil O'Donnell, your no, your it's just not great. Cordell yeah. Stewart's yeah. of your, the world. Your Mason Rudolph. Your Mason. Your Mason Rudolph. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To bring us to a little more current <laughs> yeah. names. Nobody exactly. knows those names you're dropping, Jesse. Well, well I know them, and I'm. That doesn't them out matter. There. Okay, look up Cordell Stewart. Yeah, people know who Cordell Stewart is. That yeah, guy, there you go. That guy was a pretty good football player. Yeah, what's the matter with you, Tag? You literally just compared him to, I don't even know who. I wouldn't I wouldn't compare Hank Grady to Cordell Stewart. He was a pretty good football player. Hank Grady was, was not. Yeah. Yeah. But the Dolphins' defense bend but didn't break during that uh, early second half and only gives up a field goal. Bob Greasy comes out, hits Paul Warfield, 52-yard gain. Everything's changed now. Two plays later, though, uh, Greasy throws a interception. However, it gets overturned because Steelers' defense was offside. <sighs> but, of course, Greasy leads the team. We're going forward after a penalty, as always happens. Jim Kick scores. You might think, that's it, Jim Kick. Game's over, right? No. We got to get concussed Terry Bradshaw back in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're good, Terry. Just head out back. Th- head on out back there, pal. Let's get that googly-eyed prick back under center. Let's go. 
<laughs> but before that, the grinding Dolphins offense just continued to gain first downs and burn time. Jim Kick scores his second touchdown of the game now in the fourth quarter. It's the winning score. I'm, I'm going to break the news now. It is the winning score. We have a little bit more to talk about, but Jim Kick for the second week in a row. Nose for the end zone. He's getting there. Miami's up 11, 21-10. But, again, Terry Bradshaw, too stupid to know how to give up, saddles up and gets back in the game. He does go 4 for 4, though. Gets a quick touchdown in less than two minutes. A minute and 32 seconds burns off the clock. He, he was marching the team. He looks good out there. The Steelers are now down 4. It's 21-17. They needed a stop. They actually get it. So with three minutes left, the Steelers get the ball back. Bill Stanfield, though, gets not just his first sack of the game, but Miami's first sack of the game, and takes down Bradshaw. And on the very next play, Nick Bonaconti intercepts our concussed signal caller. However, though, because we can't be out of it, this, these Dolphins got to give us a little bit of a heart attack. They get back down to the Pittsburgh 9 and turn the ball over on 4th and 1 with uh, hair over 30 seconds left. This gives the Steeler faithful one more hope. We have our concussed leader of destiny. We're sending him back out there. <laughs> he maybe looks pretty bad throwing that ball that got picked off by Nick Bonaconti, but he's going to make it. He's going to be fine. He went 4-for-4 four four on the series before that. Um, he didn't look great, and he throws this <laughs> wounded duck, and uh, Mike Cologne picks it off to end the game. They called him Mike Cullen, but I feel like it's Cologne. Anyways, yeah, that, that's, that's the end of the game. Dolphins win. We're headed off to the Super Bowl. With our perfect record intact. So, 16-0, and 0, heading into the Super Bowl. January 14th, 1973, at the L.A. Coliseum. Redskins coach, George Allen, faced very similar struggles with his Redskins team. That was a perennial losing franchise. But took on the challenge in a very different way to Shula did. In a much more animated, supportive, and enthusiastic role with his players. Taking them to their very first division win, and now Super Bowl. These two teams very much reflected the head coaches' visions and attributes, which created a very interesting matchup for the Super Bowl. The Dolphins' no-name defense was absolutely brilliant and did not give an inch to the -the over-the-hill gang from Washington. The Redskins' defense at this point was rising to the challenge as well of Miami. This led to an interception by Jake Scott, which gave the ball right back to the Dolphins' offense. Paul Warfield appears to have scored Miami's second touchdown after he burned past Washington corner Fisher again, but it was taken off the board by an illegal procedure penalty. These procedure calls are always so strange to, to people like me that maybe aren't so in-depth on some of the rules on football. So on this play in particular, it was the way that the wide receiver moved across the line, correct? I believe so, yes. So what about that made this procedural play, like what made it a procedure penalty? Uh, It could be a number of things. It could be, um, you know, not not enough guys on the line scrimmage. It could be a player's helmet sticking out. Uh, past the line of scrimmage. Mm-hmm. It could be a number of things. So when it comes to the wide receiver, now I know, at least in today's game, the wide receiver, if in motion, has to be either parallel to the ball or actually moving backwards, like further back from the ball. So I don't know if maybe it was a scenario where he was moving ever so slightly forward and they called it as simple as that. It very well may have been, yeah. To the best of my knowledge, too, you, uh, you have to be set uh, before you have to snap the ball. I don't know, like, 
I don't know what the rules were like back in the early 70s and how that uh, progressed, but I know in like this day and age, you pretty much have to be set and not uh, in motion, basically, when the ball snapped. Yeah, there's snapped. some very mild uh, and very specific ways that it can be used in motion, not, not like the CFL where you get a running start. I love that's one of those rules that, like, I really wish the NFL adapted. That and the rouge. <laughs> Give me the rouge. I, I, would, <laughs> I just say that to piss off Chris because I know he's going to listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> and make oh. fun of him sometimes. <laughs> That's all I got. That's yeah. the way it goes. I mean, I'd love to see the wider field and the extra player. I, I think it makes for a more exciting game. I don't mind four downs, though. No, four downs for sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Anyways. Larry Brown, the running back for the Redskins, was punished all day long by the strong team defense and pursuit by the no-name defense. Jim Kick would be led by Larry Zonka into the end zone for Miami's second touchdown, making it 14-0 at the half. The Redskins would come out of the second half, having made some adjustments, including attacking underneath on small out routes along the sidelines, which led to six completions, bringing them well into Miami territory. But on this day, their execution in key moments was not up to the task, including a drop pass right in front of the Miami end zone by Charlie Taylor. Manny Fernandez would then sack Redskins quarterback Bill Kilmer, forcing a field goal attempt. The attempt was then missed, leaving the Redskins still scoreless after their best and arguably their most important drive. The next Miami drive would be headlined by fullback Larry Zonka, whose smash-mouth, heavy-hitting running style helped wear down the Washington defense, was, which was capped off by a big 49-yard rumble. He was rumbling, bumbling, and stumbling all the way down the field. He was just getting everything in the way. One of the biggest plays of the game, for sure. Yeah, and, um, I mean, this, unfortunately, was kind of uh, stifled by a, uh, an interception thrown by uh, Bob Greasy, to Owens on the goal line, leading to one more chance for the struggling Washington offense to kind of make amends and really get momentum swung back in their favor. Bill Kilmer would lead the Redskins down the field, only to have a wide open Jerry Smith in the end zone. The ball never got there. Do you want to guess why? (laughs) I know why, and it's great. (laughs) Yeah, well, it would never happen today's game, but uh, the ball actually hit the goal post. That's another thing I want to see back in the NFL. You want the goal post in the end zone? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> deeper I, end zone, like the CFL? You yeah, want no, deeper I want, to see, end zone? I want the bigger field, like the CFL and field. And the deeper end zones? With the deeper like a, end zones. Yeah. And, but I still want it right in the middle because it's hilarious when it happens. Somebody just like dings a pass off of it, or even better, somebody runs into it. Oh. Running into it is actually the better of the two options, honestly. Oh, so it's much good. more deflating when you just hit it with a ball. I don't know, man. Third and, you know, let's just say it's third and goal. In our imaginary scenario here where we're playing NFL rules with NFL players with a CFL field, it's third and goal. It's the Super Bowl. Tom Brady drops. He has Randy Moss coming across the middle, and he flings it so it's a perfect pass. And ding! All right. <laughs> Either way, Kilmer, unfortunately, hits the, uh, hits the goal post, is unable to hook up for the touchdown. On the very next play, Miami cut more or less – Seals the game. Jake Scott gets his second interception of the day. Miami actually, on this next drive, marches down the field. You know what? They're, they're going to ice the game. Metaphorically speaking, they're going to they're gonna lay it out there. They're going to have a 17 to nothing win to cap off their 17-0 run. Literally, I mean, looking at the kick from the side, 
Like, there's no way it was ever clear in the line. Like, he fucked it up. It didn't get blocked. He punted it right into the right yeah. into his center's ass, basically. Yeah. Didn't get enough height. No, God, no. Like, he drilled it, it at the line. Like, yeah. it, went, it went about three feet up. Like, yeah. it was a line drive. Yeah. And the ball, the loose ball actually bounces back his direction. He picks up the ball, attempts to throw it in, in an even more comically hilarious fashion. I can only imagine that his tiny toddler hands were not able to fit around the football. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like, like, you know, like us in, like, what, third grade trying to pick up a fucking CFL ball. Yeah. It's a little bit bigger around. And, just, yeah. and it kind of goes end for end. Like, in about two yards, because that's exactly what happened. That is exactly, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> it is one of the all-time great NFL bloopers. It's fantastic. Washington defender Mike Bass picks off said ball. That was an alleged pass. Yeah, uh, we'll yeah. call it a pass. A forward shovel. <laughs> yeah, whatever the fuck you want to call it. He, he returns it all the way back. Oh, no, the, the best part about that whole highlight pack is your premium not really going for the tackle. That's because he's the size of a toddler. <laughs> he, just, he runs by in front of him. He doesn't even throw his body at him. You kind of see him put like one arm up in the air. I just love Manny Fernandez. Like, I didn't know a man could be that yellow. <laughs> I think he really was just banking on the fact that like if he ran his direction, tried to like kind of like corner him out and... Fucking bass really didn't bite on it. No. He just was like, fuck you. If you ain't going to tackle me, I'm gone. Somebody get this six-year-old out of here. <laughs> I don't know if you guys heard, but, like, Garrett wasn't really popular on that Dolphins team. Shock. Like, you, you mean the guy that would go around singing baritone like Kermit the Frog wasn't the most popular guy on that squad? You know, I, I've heard stories like that, but I'm not, like... I'm assuming it was a personality thing, because in all honesty, he did his job well. Yeah, well enough, yeah. Generally yeah. speaking, I mean, in some of these games, like he was, he was hitting, you know, this fifty still, plus yarders. This is semi regularly. Yeah, this is still the era of some teams have a toe hack kicker. Yeah. Right. So the yeah he's hitting long forties, you know, light fifty yard kicks. It's good for the era. So Washington would do their best to get the ball back on the the next drive. Obviously, you know, they swung momentum. The game's fourteen seven. Mercury Morris appears to have a lane to get the, another first down slips as he kind of bounces outside, causing the Dolphins to have to punt the ball back to Washington one last time. And this this punt was actually nearly blocked. You watch that replay, like, they got close. They, you know, they were pushing for it, and they got close. The game would end with the Dolphins actually getting pressure and, surprise, surprise, getting a sack on Bill Kilmer. Capping off the perfect 17-0 season, the Miami Dolphins, Super Bowl champs. And they did it the same way that they did it all year. Powerful run game. Stomp defense. That was it. It was the culmination of what began in 1970. Taking a team from worst to first and then learning from the Dallas Super Bowl loss. You know, that it all culminated into what became Super Bowl Seven for the Miami Dolphins going 17-0. And, and, you know, what, what could have been earlier you know I, I don't think that we get this 72 Dolphins team if they don't lose to Dallas in that game yeah right? no they wouldn't have come in with the same fire passion like if they won they'd be like great we're the best if yeah. they lost to Kansas City they would have got relatively complacent year, it would have been like yeah you know but they they learned a lot from Dallas that day rather than they would have learned from a Kansas City or a Baltimore. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, well, I, it was I, great. I think it was just even just the moment in which they lost. Like, they, they proved they could get to the big game. And they knew they could have beaten that team if they played their game. 
to the level they know they can play it. First day of training camp, 1972. Don Shuley gets everybody together in one room and makes them all watch film of the 19 of Super Bowl six. Yeah. Like if if they had. Yeah, absolutely. They wouldn't have had the same fire yeah. if they lost. And I don't know if it was that they l- learned anything from the Cowboys. I think it was more the the just the power, the fire and passion that was created from losing right at the end. I agree. But I that's agree. just me. Yeah, fair enough. But either yeah. way, I mean, this crew they managed to stick together for a little bit longer. Yeah, Nineteen seventy-three. Well, basically, they would go twelve and two down the stretch. I mean, shocker, they lost two games. Oh, the world is over, right? And they, they got the pressure out. Like I think it was like week two or week three, they, they got the loss. They lost to the Raiders, I believe. Yeah, and they just got it done and over with. Yeah, so uh, that pressure of you know being perfect, like you said, Elevs was kind of off them. It was alleviated. They're, they're moving along. They're yeah. moving along. But uh, 73, they uh, go 12-2, and two, obviously win the AFC East again. And... Uh, just plow their way like they did the year before and beat Minnesota 24-7 to in New Orleans, no less. So they go back to the scene of the crime from 71 and win at Tulane Stadium. Nice. Well, that pretty much sums it up. The, the 72 team, they – is there any better? No. No one has ever had a better record than the 72 Dolphins. However, if you're talking about the best football team of all time – is it the 72 Dolphins? For my money, I'm going to say yes. Because we're talking about a team. People that just gave up on, on personal accolades. Didn't care about Don Shula's 100th win. They cared about the Super Bowl that year and the undefeated season. You could definitely make a case that this might be the greatest team of all time. I mean... Well, really, who, who would your team be? Who would your team be? Uh, for me, I've always been a uh, 1985 uh, Chicago Bears you know, enthusiast. Yeah. Even though they went 15 and one, I still, you know, that collection of care of players and characters as well. I am under, the, I'm always going to probably side with them as being the greatest team to ever, you know, win the Super Bowl. Yeah. But that's better than your chicken salad sandwich comments. I'll tell you that much. Well, I mean, chicken salad sandwich <laughs> always comes out on top, brother. Well, I can I can at least uh, you know side with you a bit on this one. Not the sandwich thing. The the team. <laughs> um, <laughs> the '85 Bears is absolutely the standard for defenses. Period. Yeah. You hear to this day if any defense is having a pretty decent year. They automatically get compared to the 85 Bears, and more often than not, they lose to the 85 Bears statistically. Oh, these guys aren't the 85 Bears. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. There's nobody that's the fucking 85 Bears. That that defense was incredible. But, man, this no-name defense, you know, you know what they, the, the more research you do on them, the more you think... Eh, they weren't far off. They weren't far off. Well, but, you know... Uh, I think when you're when you're looking at them, and we, and we talked about it a little bit earlier in the episode, like they don't stand out individually amongst their peers. It was the amalgamation of, of what they were. They don't have a William Refrigerator Perry. They don't have a Mike Singletary. No. They don't have any of those guys. No, and, and and they did it more with teamwork than they did as individuals. And so I, I think because of that, the 85 defense might be better. Well, I think it was the... the the, the real thing, obviously, with with this Miami team was just, just the culture change and the attitude instilled by Shula. Like, he tuned the, 
turn these guys into fine-tuned machines yeah. at the, their respective highest level. Yeah. Like, he, he took every player, and if they bought into his system, they were the best they could be at their job for who they were. Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't, like we said, they didn't have the star power. They didn't have those big names. But he took every single guy, and as a complete unit... One of the best, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's what uh, Belichick does with his defenses nowadays. You oh, know? absolutely. Yeah. Not a lot of known, not a lot of names that you're familiar with, but he turns them into guys that play a role and just like Belichick says, does their job. There's well, a there's a lot of comparisons that can be made between uh, Bill Belichick and Don Shula. Well, 100%. and it's funny seeing some of the guys after they leave the the uh, um, Belichick offense in or defense, sorry, in. Uh, in New England there because a lot of them their names start to disappear they're not as successful no no yeah. they're, they're, they're they made their name because of the core and group effort mm-hmm. and the play play style that was built around their respective uh, skill sets yeah whereas you know you get a Jamie Collins go over to Cleveland garbage didn't hear from him. Didn't hear from him. Because he was garbage. But he was great in New England, wasn't he? Yeah, he went back to being, you know, above replacement in New England, yeah. But today's been wonderful. This guy, this was tons of fun, fellas. This, this was good. awesome. I had a blast. Until next time, we've loved hearing from you. From myself, Jesse, and Taggart, goodbye. See you, pals.